Very good. Thank you, Wyzetta. It's a real privilege and an honor to be with you guys today. Um, if we could get that PowerPoint running, I'd like to show you a picture here. Um, to get started, maybe. So one of the things that George mentioned is that I manage a website, which is literally theholybook.org in Turkish called kutsalkatop.org. And on average, we're going to have anywhere between 1,000 and 1,200 people that are going to see that be on this page every single day. And I was going to show you a, the homepage, um, perhaps, um, because on the page, all I'm asking people to do is click on a button. I want them to watch the initial video that's there. And I produced about four videos about a month ago in which the first video was on loving your neighbor, which is very interesting. And then the second video was on loving your enemies. And in a lot of ways, what, that's what it means to be, a, to be a Christian in Turkey today. Because to love your neighbors and to love your enemies are one and the same thing. So yeah, so this is a picture. I don't know how easy it's going to be, but that's my friend Erdal. We try to print these or publish these, if you will, at, um, on Friday afternoons at about 3.30. The idea is to try to build up a little bit of a rapport where people come back every week. Um, and so the SEV right there, it, stand, it just means love. And uh, so it, it's been fun to see those videos, and we want to continue to pray that people will um, respond to it and see that this Christian message is really different. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I would like you to turn it on or open it up. Um, if you are using the Black Bible, I'd like you to turn to page 959. This is Matthew five thirty-eight to 48. So, yeah... I'll go ahead and read it for you. I think this is a familiar passage to you all. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him take your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends the rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Will you pray with me, guys? Jesus, uh, come before you right now, and I kind of need your help. Um, I think actually we all need your help. Uh, We're looking at Muslims, we're looking at a passage here that uh, is frankly really difficult, Um, and we're looking at subjects that are scary and really difficult. Um, So I want to pray that you'll help us to kind of filter out the things that uh, need to be filtered out and be able to focus on what your message for each one of us is today and uh, through this passage and through everything that I'm going to try to share. In Jesus' name, amen. To quote John Scott, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teachings of Jesus, and though arguably it's the least understood, and it's certainly the least obeyed. 
and these verses that we just read here, they are the high point in the Sermon on the Mount, which is both the most admired and I would argue the most resented. Jesus here has commanded us to show love to those who are evil and those who are our enemies. There are a lot of really hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, but in a lot of ways I feel like these are some of the hardest. Um, Because to me, it runs counter to everything that's in me, naturally as a person. What we're being commanded to do here is beyond what is natural for anyone outside of God's grace and mercy. Because those that are evil are scary. There's much in this world that is really dark and quite disturbing. And it's one thing to seek to, to love our neighbors. But loving Muslims, given what we're seeing in Syria and Iraq today, given what happened in Orlando, given what happened at Ataturk Airport in Istanbul, um, it gets a little bit harder, doesn't it? So, so I, to this morning, what I really want to ask is how? How can we do this? But before we can get to that how, I'm going to need to spend a little bit of time talking about Islam and why it is that at this point in history, right now, we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing. Have you, I don't know how many of you have friends that are Muslims or have uh, had an opportunity to speak to them, but oftentimes what you're going to find is that they talk about Islam as being a religion of peace. Have you guys ever heard that before, Islam being a religion of peace? We hear it almost every day in Istanbul. So. And right here, and before I get too much deeper, I want to say that there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today, and almost all of them are peace-seeking individuals. I honestly think all humans are. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You want to live a good life. And so even if you see them as being the enemy or scary, try to keep that in mind, guys. All of them want to find peace. Let's go on to the next slide. But does Islam equal peace? No, it doesn't. What Islam equals is surrender or perhaps submission. Um, And what we find is that Islam in general is, or that any time that we find peace in Islam, it is a, a peace after violence or under the threat of it. If you look at the Quran and the Hadith, or the oral teachings of Islam, you're going to find that jihad and violence are inextricably tied to the teachings of Muhammad. And this is part of what makes it really difficult. Have you guys ever, are you guys familiar with the idea of solo scriptura? You know, this is a, this is a particularly Protestant idea um, that says that the, we're going to take the Bible, we're going to take the core teachings of Jesus, and we're going to focus all of our doctrinal truths and all of our practical truths are going to need to come out of the Bible itself, right? So that was John, uh, Luther's idea back in the 1500s. Uh, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing today in Islam is a Protestant move. Let's move to the next one. So, yeah, radical Islam, in my mind, is an opportunity for a Protestant movement in, in Islam. And it's not surprising that this is happening at this point in history. The Quran and the Hadith are all written in an ancient form of Arabic. So Muslims around the world, well, up until very recently, accessing it was quite difficult. Most, most Muslims, if they wanted to become more devout or more radical, they only had one option. They could go to their local priest or their local imam and ask him, so what do you think? I mean, what, what do I need to become a more faithful follower of, of Allah? Uh, it, and uh, that inherently filtered 
that limited some of the things that people were able to respond to. Of course, I mean, there were some priests that could be quite radical, but there were also many, many that were not and stuff. And so that kind of tempered everything. Well, the internet has changed all of that. Because now, I don't care what language you're in, I don't care where in the world you're at, you could actually access the oral teachings, the Hadith and the Quran, right from your computer or your tablet or your phone. And you know, one of the key tenets of jihad, one of the things that's made these things so successful, has been their engagement through social media and Twitter in particular. So let's keep on going. So, so when we talk about ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram, we really can't look at these as all being new modern Islamic movements that interpret and conduct their policies through the lens of religious beliefs and each see their, themselves as a champion of true Islam. So I've had a real opportunity, a real interesting opportunity over the past several years to work with scholars who are studying these groups and studying jihadi movements and methodology. And what we found is that they're some of the best in the world at what marketers would call lead nurturing. In other words, finding people who are interested in the message and then offering them a vision of the future that entices them to join the effort. And there's really something to this. They've understood the medium of social media like few others. It's now estimated there's over 5,000 uh, Europeans that are fighting for ISIS today. And those that have, been, that have joined, they're not the poor, they're not the disadvantaged of society. These are well-educated, they're popular kids, they're coming from stable families, they're often girls. I mean, we don't need to always think of it as being a, a male thing and stuff. And so what is that? Why is that happening? Um, let's go to the next one. So what is it that makes it so successful? Well, in a lot of ways, it's not really an enigma. So this is a picture of um, the two covers of the Dabiq magazine, which was started by ISIS in 2014. It's really fun. I thought that Twitter hashtag was particularly effective. You know, um, so, um, the, uh, so Dabiq is, you know, let's see, where do I start with this? Dabiq is the name of a small city in southern or in northern Syria, I guess. It's about an hour south of the Turkish border. And in some traditions, it's believed that when Islam come or when, you know, the end of the world comes and Islam is going to eventually be able to defeat Rome, which they tend to interpret as being Christianity or America, um, that it's going to actually happen at Dabiq and things. And so this is why they chose that as the title of their magazine. And it's brilliantly put together. Um, I like the one on the left. I mean, as you can see, they're looking at the story of Noah and the, uh, the flood. Can't really read it there very well, but it says it's either the Islamic State or it's the flood. It's painted in very black and white terms. Um, yeah, so... Um, so produced in English, actually produced in Arabic and in English and in Turkish in Persian, um, pretty much any language that they're recruiting in. It appeals to the prospective recruit to leave his homeland and to immigrate to the Islamic State. And it urges the recruit to realize that he's living in times that reflect those of the earliest Muslims by referring to Muhammad's life. And it encourages him to take, to take a step of faith by quoting the Quran and praises him for obedience by quoting the Hadith. Such is the frequency and intensity with which, which ISIS uses foundational texts 
to appeal to recruits. Well, I want to ask you guys a question. Why do you think that works? Well, in some ways, isn't that really similar to what we as Christians are seeking to? Greater faithfulness, greater community, greater connections to our past, greater connections to a larger thing that's outside of ourselves. I mean, in a lot of ways, they're appealing to very similar heart issues that youth are facing today and figured out a way to recruit them into to what they're doing. Um, in reality, and, and, and what's, what's interesting is that the uh, violent expressions of Islam adhere more consistently and more literally to the foundational texts of Islamic faith, to the Quran and the Hadith, than any sort of peace movement that you might be able to find in it. Um, and herein lies the fundamental problem that I think all Muslims are facing today. Muslims who study the canonical texts carefully are ultimately going to be faced with just how violent and inescapably violent um, their faith is. And that leads them to a three-pronged fork in the road. So they're going to have just a few choices. They can either become apostates, they could become apathetic, or they could radicalize. By apostasy, what I mean is leaving the faith. And obviously we want to hope and pray and seek to help them to um, apostatize from, from Islam and become believers. A lot of them, though, are going to apostatize from Islam and going to go become atheists. Or they're going to become completely apathetic and just sort of ignore all religion and become kind of secularists. I think we know plenty of people around the world that are like that today. Um, or they're going to become radicalized. So in a lot of ways, the question is, can, how do we meet them in that moment before they make that decision? Because in a lot of ways, they're all going to try to have to make that decision at some point. Um, that's about as far as I'm going to take my introduction to Islam today. A lot of what I've done so far has come out of um, this guy, Nabil Qureshi's book called Answering Jihad, which is a wonderful little text, um, nice introduction to these things. Um, and I, he's one of these guys that I really think we should be studying and learning from. He's, uh, he works with Ravi Zacharias Ministries and um, is a wonderful apologist. And I'd like to uh, show you a little video of him uh, talking about one of his other books. So. If Christianity were true, and it meant you had to give up everything to follow God, would you want to know the truth? I was a mama's boy. I, uh, every time we went out somewhere, if I were scared, I would run up to my mom. Um, I would stay very close to her. If I were sick, I would put my head on her tummy. Um, I was very, very close to my mother. My earliest memories are of my mother every day sitting me next to her and having me put on my skull cap and showing me how to recite the Quran letter by letter. I finished the Quran when I was five years old and by that time I had memorized the last seven chapters so that I could recite them during the five daily prayers. To be raised Muslim in the United States was a point of pride because we believed uh, that we had the truth. In my freshman year of college, my best friend and I had many conversations about faith. and We argued all the time about Islam versus Christianity. But one specific day, he pulled me aside and he said, Nabil, if Christianity were true, and it meant you had to give up everything to follow God, 
Would you want to know the truth? It took a long time before I was able to determine for myself, even if I lose everything, it's worth it. And when my parents did find out, it was the most painful day of my life, probably the most painful day of their lives too. And I'll never forget the look in my mother's eye. Her whole life is Islam, just like my life was. And now my whole life is Christ. And there's just no, there's no, um, there's no connection anymore. But to have Christ in my life makes every loss worth it. My hope and my prayer for this book is that everyone who picks it up would draw closer to one another. Muslims by understanding the gospel, Christians by understanding the passion and the love that Muslims have, and ultimately through all of this so that we can arrive at the truth and at a glory that will be given to God. Nabil here. That, that book uh, is, again, a wonderful one that I would really encourage you guys to, to take a look at. What I want to focus on, though, in that story that I find so remarkable is Nabil's experience of having a friend who was willing to engage with him and spend time with him debating Christianity and debating Islam. You know, one of the things that I think that, you know, I, growing up in America, it felt like the things that we never wanted to talk about around the dinner table were politics or religion. Well, you go over to Turkey, you go over to the Middle East, and those are the two things everybody wants to talk about, politics and religion. And uh, so in a lot of ways, whoever his friend was, I mean, was brilliant. He debated with him and eventually brought him to the point, loving him well, where he was willing to ask the question. And in my mind, both those two things are very needed in this world today. We have to engage them. We have to be willing to talk with them and debate with them. Sometimes it gets a little bit intense. And we have to love them very well. And I thought his story there um, in two and a half minutes does a good job of doing both those two things. And I've got to be honest with you guys. I'm not sure which is scarier, um, for somebody like Nabil to try to become a Christ follower or for us to uh, try to love our enemies well. Um, George did a wonderful job here a few minutes ago of setting us up uh, talking about the Syrian conflict and some of the problems that we've been facing uh, in terms of refugees uh, there. Um, and I kind of want to turn my attention a little bit towards that. Uh, over four years ago, the conflict in Syria broke out into that civil war, and now over half the population of, of Syria, over 22 million people, is displaced. Uh, try to imagine being in a context in which there, the threats to you and your family are so acute that you, you choose to flee either to Lebanon or, down, or up into Turkey. What I, oh, we're going to back up, actually, so I just would like to leave it as a blank screen for now. So. Um, what I wanted to show you right now is a picture um, that really kind of took over, especially social media platforms in Turkey, um, back, I want to say, around November of last year. Uh, it was a picture of, you know, there, there were lots of people who were coming up through, through Turkey to the border and then trying to get on a boat over to Greece, over to the islands. And if you think about what that means for people, that's super, super intense. Most of these, particularly Syrian Muslims, have never been swimming before. They live in a desert. And the next thing you know, they're, on, they're trying to get on a boat to travel several miles across the Mediterranean. I mean, this is really, really desperate. 
And there was this child, like a two-year-old child, that drowned on that trip and then washed up on the shores uh, in, um, of the coast there in, in Turkey. And there's this picture of this uh, policeman, um, a gendarme, he's a military policeman, I guess, um, who discovered him. And, I mean, the kid is face down in the sand. And I'll tell you, I mean, it rocked people's world. And in a lot of ways, um, it rocked ours too. Uh, I think one of the most important things we can take from a picture like that is an opportunity to just show the real face of these people. And what I think is important for us as we seek to try to love our neighbors or love our enemies is to see them as humans. And when you see something that, that desperate and such an incredible loss, I mean, can you imagine losing a... You know, it's one thing when, you know, I mean, militant youth end up, you know, dead in a battlefield, but to lose a two-year-old on a trip in which you're trying to flee as a family? I mean, it was just absolutely horrific. And I don't care how evil you think the enemy might be. Nobody, and I mean nobody, should ever lose a child like that. Matthew 5.44 says, Pray for those who persecute you. And one of the key things in order to be able to pray for enemies, again, is to see them as humans. And not just as humans, but as people that you can picture yourself as. And pictures like this are going to help us to um, be able to see those that we otherwise might call our enemies as real people in real need. Okay, I'm ready, I think, to move to the next one. So, so um, you've been studying about loving your neighbors as yourself the past few weeks. And I want to remind you that this command exists throughout Scripture. And the idea of loving your neighbor doesn't even start with Jesus. It exists all the way back in Leviticus 19.18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that command is repeated seven times throughout the New Testament. In Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then by Paul in Romans and Galatians. And then by James. Anything that comes up that frequently in Scripture, I think we really, really need to focus on. And a love shown in sympathetic and actual care for them has always been God's standard for human relations. The love that God commands his people is a love so great that it even embraces your enemies. Don't really have time to look at it right now with you, but the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10 is a wonderful place to turn your attention to. Because in that story, the question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus makes it very clear that your neighbor is anyone who needs help. So when you think about political debates circling around this election year, or you think about Brexit, which was largely about the refugees, if you think about things like Orlando or thing, you know, the Istanbul attack or anywhere else, this is what I really want you to be thinking about in the back of your mind. I mean, how are these people my neighbors? So, uh, I found this in a, in a commentary that I thought was a wonderful little quote. I cannot, like a low, mean criminal who has been robbed and threatened my life, I cannot, like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again, but I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love them all, see what is wrong them, and desire to work to do them only good, most of all, to free them from their vicious ways. This is why so many Christians and Christian organizations in Turkey are seeking to get involved in refugee ministries. You know, again, you know, the, the crisis has spread Syrians in both directions, down to Lebanon and up into Turkey. 
But at this point, there's over 3 million refugees, Syrian refugees, that are in Turkey, meaning that we've got more refugees there than anywhere else in the world. And one of the real challenges for Turks is that they don't speak Arabic, right? We speak Turkish there. Um, and as anybody that's been involved in cross-cultural ministry knows, is that if you don't know the language, it can be really hard to share the gospel. Um, so back in April, um, I was given a really interesting opportunity uh, to, on behalf of four different ministries in Turkey, to travel down to Beirut and try to find Lebanese evangelists who could help Turkish believers help Syrian seekers. I just find that to be astounding. Again, so Lebanese evangelists, Turkish believers, and Syrian seekers. If you think about that by itself, it, I mean, just makes my spine tingle (laughs) to think about. Um, It was a special trip for me. Um, I found a very fascinating and beautiful city uh, that has um, Christians and Sunni and Shia Muslims living side by side, or maybe neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, And um, in a lot of ways, I found it to be a beautiful place, but I kept on hearing from many people that it's nowhere near as beautiful as it used to be. Because as you guys may know, there was a civil war that lasted there from 1975 to 1990. And in a lot of ways, I mean, the primary enemy in those conflicts were the Syrians and the Israelis. So you can imagine the hate and animosity that built up in Lebanon towards Syria. So when the refugee crisis started, now over four years ago, the Lebanese church wasn't sure exactly what to do with it. Of course, God was calling them to respond to help the refugees. But really, these refugees? I mean, really? I mean, these have been our enemies. I mean, true enemies. I heard from one church that said that when they decided to start projects to help the refugees, they lost 40% of their congregation just because they were trying to help the refugees. heard about another one that even lost 70% of their congregation. And then this little bubbly girl said to me, um, but what's really special is that since then, we're now three times as big as we used to be because we've got so many refugees that are now part of the church. One told me that they've got a hundred small groups meeting that primarily Kurds and um, Arabs that are meeting across the city all in connection with this church, all refugee-based things. God is really working there in some beautiful, beautiful ways. To kind of quote George here, I mean, to go back to what he, uh, he was saying, um, this was a, a, a field worker from Syria. He said, before the war, our church prayed for a revival in our nation. We prayed that every individual heart would receive a copy of the New Testament. We had no idea how to accomplish this goal of giving every Syrian a New Testament, but the war is how God answered the prayers of the church. God allowed evil to take place in Syria to spread the Syrian people all over the world so the church around the world can can step into action and reach out to the Syrians and spread the gospel to them. This is how we need to look at refugees. We don't need to look at them as a threat. The church needs to look at refugees as an opportunity to assist the local church in reaching them. Refugees are the task of the church, really. So my question for you, Isaiah, is how are you going to do these things? How are you going to be able to reach out? Well, this Arrive uh, thing that's starting next week I think looks brilliant. And we're going to have to try to find ways to befriend them, to love them, spend time with them, go to school with them, do life with them. If I could go back to that, I don't need to go anywhere, but if, if uh, that, that, the video of Nabil, 
his friend's ability to talk and debate with him about Christianity and Islam and to love him well made all the distance the difference. And now look at what a committed follower of Christ he is. Next one up, I think. So, um, you, uh, Michelle and I and our boys, we live in Istanbul, Turkey, and we attend a Turkish church with a Muslim background believer. We live in the middle of one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And I've got a little video that I hope is starting to scroll there um, that I want you guys to kind of focus on right now to say, I mean, it's, it's really gorgeous there. And our kids, both James and Elijah, they're at a Turkish private school. And I couldn't be more proud of them. Hard workers, nearly all of their education has been in Turkish. And they're doing great. Is it easy? I wouldn't say so. But there are plenty things, uh, of things we don't like about the societal pressures that we face. They, and it got bad enough last year that you know, we actually had to move and put our kids into a different school. But we can really still see that God is moving and that God is working there. And if you can give me another minute and a half, I do just want to mention the attack in, uh, at the airport. You know, in May, I was actually at that airport, at the Atatürk Airport, four times in one month. I mean, that's really my airport. Um, and so this was really scary to us and uh, it's bizarre and frightening to have it so hit so close to home doesn't mean that I can't still use that airport and you know terrorist activity kind of like lightning doesn't tend to strike twice in the same place and so any of you who are thinking about coming to Turkey or doing things with refugees or in the Middle East please don't let terrorist activity reasons to not get involved you're still more likely to die in a car accident than you are to face any of these things um, and I want just again just want to show you guys just how gorgeous of a place it is and tell you again that God is at work in some special ways and I believe why Zeta can play a key role in these efforts and I believe that we are going to see this movement of God uh, here through and with refugees. Thank you, guys.